0: Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message.
1: will not you go with me in the Bible to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to begin today. It's the text that we're going to examine in our time together. Acts chapter 16. Let me give you some context before we read our text. It's interesting. I preached two weeks ago in the beginning of this series about God's preparation for the mission that he has for us. And I used the story and conversion of the Apostle Paul as a clear kind of picture because 1 Timothy 1.16 says that the pattern of which Paul comes to the Lord becomes our pattern. So that means the way we learn about his story sheds light on kind of our story of redemption and how God would use us. And um, and last week, Pastor Chad talked about the pain and difficulties and challenges we face. We turn them out for the advancement of the gospel and the lives as a witness to other people. Today, I want to share a a message with you that really, really burns in my heart that I'm entitled in what God can do through ordinary you. What God can do through ordinary you. It's interesting, really, in Acts 2, when the... Day of Pentecost had come and the birthday of the church. There are 3,000 uh, believers that come to Christ. They're cut to the heart and they get born again. By the time Acts 2 ends, we move on into Acts 3 and Acts 4. By the time we get to Acts 5 and 6, we get to Acts 6 and we have the story of the first Christian martyr. And in him, you're going to see the profile of a common Christian man. His name was Stephen. He's not an apostle or a church leader. He's just an average guy because it's because of guys like him that the church grows, Okay. You move on from that point, Acts 6. By that point, the church has become a huge movement. The Jerusalem church is about 10,000 people big by Acts 6. Okay, That's all in one city, by the way. The entire population of the city is only 40,000. One-fourth of Jerusalem are Christ followers by Acts 6. Pretty amazing. We know that, of course, the gospel leaves from Acts 6 and spreads around the world. The gospel spreads like wildfire. Uh, never, never has anything ever grown faster than any other movement in history than Christianity. By Acts 16, our text today, we get to 325 A.D., Christianity has spread like crazy. Scholars say over half of the Roman Empire had become Christian. And it all started to think about with 12 guys on a hillside with no power, no money, no endowments, no celebrity recognition at all. It's pretty amazing. All that they had was an absolute conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead And they had this strange power poured into them called the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, today, I want you to feel this. I don't want you just to hear this or see this. I'd like for you to feel the magnitude of Christian growth. So I want to show you three maps. By 45 AD, Paul went on his first missionary journey. When Paul went on his first missionary journey, there were only two areas of the world that were identified as Christians. Right around Jerusalem north into Sidon, and then across the Mediterranean Sea and there in the southwestern peninsula of Italy. Right around Rome, you had people identified as Christians. First missionary journey. By 45 AD, or excuse me, 65 AD, which is the next map, you're going to see that Christianity has spread like wildfire. You have it all the way up now into modern-day Galatia, or, or ancient Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, and then on over into Greece, and on over into Italy. It's growing. The island of Crete and Croatia are now self-identifying Christians, 65 AD second missionary journey. By the time, or third missionary journey, I should say, by the time 325 AD comes around, look what the known world identifies as Christians. It's amazing how Christianity spread like wildfire. I mean, the Christian faith was spreading like never before. The key was that every person, not just a handful of specialized apostles, saw themselves as sent ones the key for the movement and advancement of the gospel was that everybody saw them as a bearer of the good news. I've showed you before that the author of Acts, which is Luke, he seems to go out of his way to show you that ordinary people, not ordained apostles, are the ones who spread the message. It's ordinary people. That's why Kenneth Scott Ladder he said, why is it growing like this? He's a sociologist. Gave them the book recommendation, The Early Gathering, The Rise of Christianity. It's by a guy named Peter Stark, who is not a Christian. He's a sociologist, and he looks at the sociological factors of how Christianity grows so quickly. It's an amazing book. But this is a noted history professor at Yale. This is what he said. Never in so short a time as any other religious faith, and for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economical, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force, without the aid of social or cultural prestige. In other words, it was common people and that the gospel was spreading like wildfire. Stephen Neal, a Christian historian, he said, Nothing is more notable than the anonymity of the spread of the early Christian movement. It was anonymous. We at Dwelling Place believe that God has called us to be a church planting movement. That means that we believe that there will be plant, we will plant churches that will plant churches, okay? Now there are hubs of church planting movement by the, new cent- or the first century, there were three major church centers in the known world. The three major known church centers were all big church planting centers. One is in Antioch, one is in Alexandria, and one is in Rome. All three of them, what's so amazing to this is that we have no idea who founded any of them. That's what I love about it. We don't know who founded any one of these great church planting centers. I don't have time to give you all of them, but let me give you Acts 11. The founding of Antioch, notice when the disciples arrive in verse 19. The Bible says those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch. So, so God used the first Christian martyr to scatter the saints so that the gospel would go to other places. Isn't that amazing? Christians are like bouncy balls. The harder you hit us, the more we bounce. The more you do to us, the more we bounce into foreign lands. And so they're scattered now, and they're scattered to far places, and they're speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of these men, notice that, some of these men, some of these brothers, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, Antioch's going to become a church planting center. Spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists are greek guys Jews, Greek-cultured Jews. Preaching the Lord Jesus, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Notice that. Who planted the church in Antioch? When they got there, the church was already planted. By who? Some brothers, and the hand of the Lord was on them. Don't you love the anonymity of that? Some brothers who carried the gospel, some brothers who felt like they were the sent ones, carried the gospel message. Paul gets to Rome, his whole desire in life and missionary journey to get to Rome. He gets to Rome in Acts 28, and he gets there, and he's thinking, you know what, I'm going to plant a church. But the Bible says in Acts 28, when he arrived there, the church was planted by who? Some dudes. Some dudes had planted the church in Rome. Why? Think about it today. In the Western world, we are obsessed with Christian celebrities, well, at least some of us. And so we're like, you know what? Like, who planted this church? Woo, look at Alexandria. Like, who planted this thing? They're like, some dudes. I don't know. Some dudes arrived here who believed that the gospel was really the greatest news and they planted the church. They gave gospel saturation to a community. And what do you know, when you make disciples, God uses those disciples to build a church that wreaks havoc on the kingdom of darkness. And so God began to use these three center areas to become the church planting centers and hubs for the gospel to go forth. It's so interesting when you really look at this text. So the question today is, What does evangelism look like by normal people? Let me say it a different way. What does evangelism by normal people look like? I was telling with Al and Tisa last night. One of the things I've been doing with our our outreach teams here at the church is to clearly define the difference between evangelism and outreach. Evangelism is about sharing your faith in Christ. Outreach is about showing your faith in Christ to your community. And so many of us, we grow up in areas we think that has to be evangelism that the moment we meet a lost person, we've got to share our faith. We don't understand outreach. Outreach is to go in to show our faith in Christ so that it opens a heart, so that we share our faith. Listen, visible love opens invisible hearts. It's the consistency of doing it day in, day out, week in and week out, where you're reaching into a community to show them the love of Christ, to show them that you identify as a Jesus follower. Now, the good news is Acts 16 uh, answers what common evangelism looks like. Before we start in verse 13, I just want to say, anytime I preach on subjects like this, I always feel like if you're not a Christian, you probably come on days like this, and you're like, oh, this is what I hate about Christians. They're always here trying to convert me, you know? And um, a young man in our gathering, last gathering, gave his heart to Jesus. He's been on a journey the last few weeks, and we were able to celebrate him. We might as well give God praise again for what he did. I, I think, you know what? Like, yeah, we are trying to convert you. I own that. As a pastor, I own that. I really do. But I want you, if you're not born again in here, I want you to think of it from my perspective and our perspective in a minute. If we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he sent us as agents to bring salvation, how could we not tell you? We would not be your friend. You couldn't call us your friend if we didn't care enough to tell you about the hope of the gospel. You wouldn't really be able to call us friends. We're not gonna push it on you, I promise you. We won't, we will give you space. We understand the gospel does its best work when we let the gospel do its work. We don't have to seal the deal every time we knock on a person's door. We don't have to pray the prayer with them. We can plant the seed. and We can show them Christ. We can present the Word of God to them. I'd encourage you, if you're a church member, that is, you're a DP member, take something out to take notes with on your card. I'm going to give you some practical things today. Take something out just to pen. Some of you aren't moving right now. Look at your neighbor real quick and just judge them. If they don't have a pen in their hand, just judge them. Just look them up and down. Just judge them right there. All right? Something to write with. Something to write with. Acts 16, as we read, We're going to come across three gospel conversations with three persons of interest. Each of them will tell us something about the gospel. Conversation number one, Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a fashionista, M-style boutique, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. Notice this phrase. The Lord opened her heart. It would be L-style boutique. <laughs> to pay attention what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. I love that phrase. To pay attention. Gospel conversation number one is Lydia. Who was she? She was a wealthy businesswoman. Think for a moment. Fashionista. Think leader. Think DI on desk profile. Think put together. Think driven. Think brilliant. Think well known. Think respected. Leader. Lydia's a well-known leader. She's religious. You say, Craig, how do you know? Because she's at prayer meeting. But she's not yet a Christ follower. She has not yet come to faith in Christ. It's very clear. She's not a Christ follower. How does she get to come to faith in Christ? That's all I'm gonna do, by the way, for these three people is say who they were, what type of person they represent in culture, and then how they come to Christ. So we can learn. How does she come to Christ? Paul engages her essentially in an evangelistic Bible study. And while he's speaking to her, God opens her heart. He engages her with the text And God opens her heart. See where it says in verse 14? The scripture says, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, it's interesting enough that the Greek, pay attention, is the same word used for addiction to alcohol. That's good preaching. She paid attention. She craved the truth. She, once she began to taste the truth, once she began to hear the truth, she had an insatiable desire to hear more of the truth. Once she got a craving or a hunkering in her mouth, so to speak, for the word of God, she began to desire it more and more and more. People say, I don't hunger for the Bible. What's wrong with me? I'm like, how long have you read it? They're like, I don't know, once or twice a month. I'm like, how are you ever gonna gain an appetite for that which you just sample? You can't sample appetizers and get an appetite for it. You gotta eat. You gotta get in there and feed yourself. And what happens is this word is is craving, it's desiring, it's coming after it. And the Bible very clearly says that the Lord opens her heart. Some of you, that's what's happening with you right now. You never thought you'd find yourself in church. But yet you keep on coming back because the word of God is hitting you. And it's causing a desire and craving in you. Can I go ahead and just solve the riddle for you? Let me tell you what's happening with you. The Lord's trying to open your heart. The spirit of the Lord's trying to open your hearts. The disciples are waiting for Lydia's heart to be opened. That's all they're waiting for. They're waiting for the heart to be opened through the presentation of truth. Verse 15, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, remember, she's a businesswoman. She's a convincer. She's a persuasive person. She's a self-initiator. She's an activator. If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. Thank you, Luke, for writing it that way. She prevailed on us. She convinced us. Conversation number two. By the way, isn't it so cool that God's Word, you don't even have to skip verses. You just go to the very next verse, and you get the conversation number two. It's almost like Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what he's writing. I don't know. It just seems that way. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, going back to that same place where they started their evangelism, which is why when we plant churches, we tell even our own teams now that one of the strategies of church planting is you go into a new area, you go to a place where there's already religious interest but you don't know Christ. There's religious interest. Why? Because they're going to a place of prayer of people that don't know Christ. They've not come to faith in Christ. Paul did the same thing in the synagogue and temple and then yeah, he won people to the cause of Jesus Christ. But notice the Bible says, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and she brought her owners much gain money by fortune telling. Conversation number two, this girl's the opposite of Lydia. Scholars say she's probably mid-teens, 15 years old, she has a demon and she's a slave which means she's a spiritual and economic captive. She's both spiritually bound and economically bound. She's busted up. She's a slave girl. She's taken advantage of. Her demonized reality causes her captors to make money off of her. She's not on her way to prayer meeting. First, she couldn't go. She's a slave. Slaves can't go to prayer meetings. She's physically unable to go. No permission to go to a prayer meeting. Second, she has no interest in going. She's demonized. Verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Unless we didn't have the spirit of discernment, we would turn around and pat ourselves on the back, thinking that, yep, that's right, we are great men of God. But Paul doesn't understand. He understands it's different. She's kind of both attracted, yet antagonistic towards the faith. Can I just go ahead and tell you, if you meet a person who's in group two, that's people that are captive, this is normally how they reproach truth. They're somewhat interested in it, but they're antagonistic towards it as well. And we talked about it last night at dinner. What is it happening? It's people who are open to the truth, but yet because of hurt and mistrust in their heart, they become antagonistic to the truth. And there's something about the message that draws the captive and an addict in, but they have anger and mistrust seething within them, so they push it away. This is normally how captive people respond to truth they have something that draws them to it but yet they push away from it verse 18 and this she kept doing for many days Paul having become greatly annoyed I love that phrase in the Bible it lets me know the Bible's not made up it doesn't say Paul full of great compassion or Paul tearfully and tenderly turned around stroked her hair and said daughter of Eve have you come to the faith today No, no no he he's ticked he's peeved you ever been peeved with somebody, even though you're supposed to be loving them, to read them, lead them to Jesus, but you just really peeved with them? He's peeved. He's upset. He's human, and he's upset with her. And he turns around. He says, "I." He turned to the spirit. Notice he didn't say to the woman. He said to the spirit, "I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her." And it came out that very hour. How did she come to faith in Christ? Not through a Bible study. Paul performs an act of deliverance on her. He throws out the demon, which is also removing her as a circus act from the masters that make money on her. Everything's now messed up. Here you go again, Luke. We don't even have to skip a verse. We go to the conversation number three, verse 19. Here's the third one. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers, Jump to verse 22, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with their rods. And when they had inflicted many blows on Paul and Silas, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailers to keep them safely. Notice this. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Here we meet person number three, the Philippian jailer, the Gentile. The Philippian jailer. Who is he? I just want to tell you in in Roman history, jailers were highly decorated Roman officials and soldiers who as a retirement gift were given by Caesar jails to run. Think National Guard. I'm done with active service. I'm now just going to serve on the backside. So what what happens if you were a good jailer, a good soldier, you would get a retirement gift to, to take leadership over a prison. What does that mean? That means this man is older. That means he's hardened. That means he's part of the ruling class. That means he's cynical. That means he's arrogant. I'm just going to keep trying to use adjectives until you finally figure out who number three is in your life right now, okay? I just want you to get there. He's cynical. He's arrogant. He's hardened. He's turned off. He put Silas and Paul in the inner prison. You got to understand, inner prisons were usually the lowest part of the building. That was the most disgusting part of the building because all the fecal matter and human um, human pee uh, came down into the inner part. So this guard has now put Paul and Silas in human poop and pee, and they don't have food, by the way. Did you know this? In Roman prison, you don't, you don't get food. You don't have child time. You die in prison unless somebody comes and serves you. That's why Paul says in his epistles, thank you for sending the brother Epaphroditus. Thank you for sending Demas. He, he's constantly, because he needs food to survive. So they're in the inner prison and the difficult place, literally surrounded by stink. I mean, just dank and dark and horrible situation. And yet, the Bible says, then they put their feet in stocks and begin to beat them. Now, don't think of stocks like you see at Williamsburg, where you and your sister put your head in them, and you take a picture and put it on Instagram. Okay, we're not talking about that. Roman stocks, they would take chains and put them around the bottom of your ankles, and they would lift you up in the air. They would wait until your shoulders hit the ground, and then they would get you a little bit further up until your head, the crown of your head, was touching the bottom of the cell, the gel cell, and then they would take rods and beat your feet until they started bleeding, so the blood would come down your legs. And it would go into your face, it'd be dripping off of your face. And they would flog him, they would beat him. So Paul and Silas are now in this prison, getting flogged on their feet. Unbelievably painful, difficult. And verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. And everyone's bonds were unfastened. And while the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he threw his sword up and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. In those days, if you lost prisoners, you paid with your own life. It's kind of a motivation not to lose them. So he's betting to kill himself. But Paul, verse 28, cried out with a loud voice, Eat it, you cruel bigot! You get what you deserve for beating me last night. No. He says, don't harm yourself. We're all in here. Here's the question. you got to ask the question, why? When you're reading the Bible, don't, don't read through these type of texts and then just keep going to the next verse. You've got to say, Why in the world is Paul still in there? He's innocent. He knows he shouldn't be in prison. God knocked the walls down with an earthquake. His chains are off. Wasn't this an act of God? Four chapters earlier in Acts 12, they prayed for Peter, the believers did. The chains dropped. The doors opened up like you went to Walmart and you literally, the chains opened up, the gates opened up and he walked to the prayer meeting. Isn't it easy just to discern that, oh, this must be God's work to allow me to be out of prison. But yet Paul doesn't do that. Paul recognizes that this is part of the plan of God to reach Philippi hadn't he just prayed yesterday God used me to reach Philippi God used me to reach people in Philippi well if God's part of the plan is to reach Philippi to put him in prison so he could suffer well before a Philippian jailer and still worship God in the middle of the night and then tell him why he's so happy that was a price he was willing to pay even in the midst of pain and unfairness So Paul stands there with freedom on his right hand, a freedom he deserves, and left a cruel man who beat him the night before. And Paul turns his back on freedom and puts his face to his torture. Why? To share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. He goes back into the prison and he looks at the Philippian jailer. Verse 29, The jailer called for lights and rushed in. You want to know how you win the skeptic? I don't want to get to that part of my message yet, but you be faithful through suffering and watch how many prisoners watch your life. Keep your mouth full of praise and watch how many prisoners in your workplace, prisoners to sin, watch how you continue to serve God. Get a bad diagnosis and continue to be faithful and see how much, continue to show extravagant grace and see what happens to that skepticism. See what happens. Are y'all with me this morning? And so the jailer, verse 29, called for lights and he rushed in and trembling, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, Sirs! What must I do to be saved? And they said, do. There's nothing you can do. Salvation's not something you do. It's something that's been done for you. Notice the jailer was shaken. Listen, it wasn't the earthquake that shook the jailer. It was what Paul and Silas did in the earthquake and after the earthquake that shook the jailer. It was the response that shook the jailer at his core. And he says to them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. That perhaps is the shortest, most concise, direct answer to how is one saved in the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? You'll be saved, you and your household. I've told you before, probably the simplest, shortest statement of the gospel we can show. I've showed you before in our assurance series, we talked about gospel, the gospel, and how people have the assurance of salvation which is a big issue for people. Am I really saved or not saved? Well, listen, I can only be in one of two relationships to this chair. I can be standing in my own merit, my own strength saying, you know what, I'm gonna hold myself up or I can transition and transfer the weight of my body onto this chair. And when I'm doing that, I'm inherently and subconsciously communicating that I trust that these poly-whatever legs are going to hold me up, right? But I can only be in one of two positions. I can be standing up in my own strength or sitting in the chair. You can only be in one of two positions to Christ. You can be standing up in your own strength thinking your own righteous deeds and your own good actions are going to save you. Or you can transfer your trust from your life onto Jesus and believe that what he's already done for you shall save you. People say, well, I don't remember the prayer when I was a little kid. How do I? Don't even, am I really saved? And I'm like, do you remember when you sat in that chair? How do you remember you're sitting in that chair? Was it because you came in at 11.15 and you transferred and said, that was a great chair, look at those legs, I'm going to transfer my weight to that chair. No, the way you know you're in that chair is because you're still sitting in the chair. How do you know you're born again? Because your weight is not on your own legs, you are trusting in Jesus. You have seated yourself in Jesus Christ. By the way, it doesn't matter what you say to the chair if you never sit in the chair, right? do not matter if you come to an altar, oh dear chair, you are awesome and highly exalted. Hallelujah, great defender but you never sat on your rear, you aren't saved. No matter what you say to the chair, if you're not sitting in the chair. He said, what should I do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Church, this chapter contains stories of three people who all come to faith in Christ. Can I ask you a question? There were surely a lot more people in Philippi that trusted Christ during Paul's time there. Why include the stories of these three? If you're a good Bible student, you're going to ask those type of questions. It's my job as a pastor not just to teach you the Bible, but to teach you how to study the Bible. And when you study the Bible, you ask questions like this. Why does Luke give three clear accounts. I'm going to answer for you. Number one, to show us something about the gospel. These three stories of three people coming to faith in Christ show us about the gospel. What is that? Namely, that the gospel's for everybody. The gospel's not for a select few or a chosen type. It's for everybody. Could you get three more diabolically different people than a rich religious woman, a slave girl, and a Philippian jailer who's a Gentile? I mean, these are people on the opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, people say all the time, I'm not the Christian type. Listen, there is no type for becoming a Christian. People say that to me all the time. Well, I'm just not the Christian type or the religious type. I'm not the church type. Listen, there's only one creator and father. His name is God. We all have one problem. It's called sin, rebellion. We all have one hope. It's Jesus' death in our place. There's no such thing as a type of Christian because we are all unified in sin. We're all unified in that we need the hope of salvation whose name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't come to the earth and die as a rich religious woman. He didn't come to the earth and die as a Philippian jailer. He didn't come and, and die just as a person who loves motocross. He came to die as the representation of all of humanity so that when we put our faith in him and trust in him as the Lord of our life, we shall be saved. There's no no such thing as a type of Christian. There's no Christian type. And because of that, the church is a place where people of vastly different types find unity in Christ that they would not find anywhere else. They find unity in the church. Now all of us in here, we have characteristics and about ourselves that make us feel proud. We have identity things that give us identity, characteristics that give us identity, like I'm, I'm from the north, I'm a Yankee, or I'm, I've got Irish roots, or whatever the case is. I came across this in studying this week, and I just I wanted to sprint circles around my neighborhood. Because every morning, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish man, common man, this is recorded in their ancient prayer book called Sidor, S-I-D-D-U-R. Every morning, they would come before the Lord, and in their ancient prayer book, here's what a Jewish man would say. I know it's not politically correct, but you need to hear it. They would say, Lord, I thank God that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile, because they felt themselves to be above those people. So what does God save in Luke or Acts chapter 16? He saves a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Dear God, if that ain't gospel preaching, if that don't get you excited, you need to check your pulse. You know what I'm saying? I mean, literally, they're coming before God saying, oh, I thank God." I'm a woman. I'm not a slave. I'm not a Gentile. So God says, oh, you do? Okay, let's go into Philippi and let's save a woman. Let's save a slave who's economically and socially captive. And yet at the same time, I'll save a Gentile right in the middle of the jail. Why? Because the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. Oh yeah, truth Truth is absolute, but the gospel's fluid. That means the gospel fills whatever container it's put in. It doesn't matter what the container looks like. Yeah, truth doesn't, you don't deny truth. It's absolute, but gospel is not absolute. Gospel is fluid. Gospel filters down to any and everybody. It finds every crack. It goes to the disenfranchised. It goes to the lowest of lows. That's what the gospel does. We see it right here in this story. All mankind, in the church, rabbis, women, slaves, Gentiles, all set down together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord gave me something last night. I was in my study finishing up my message, and I I wrote it down. And so I felt like the Lord said to me, the unity of our community should reflect the diversity of eternity. I'm gonna say it again. The unity of our community should reflect the diversity of eternity if we're gonna be what God wants us to be in our community. That means all mankind. It means poor, rich, black, white, young, old, conservative, liberal, religious, irreligious, from good families, from broken families. We all have one problem. It's called sin, and we got one hope of salvation. His name is Jesus. So I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how far you feel like you've fallen, but I can tell you by the authority of Scripture, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, you shall be saved. Here, Romans says, there's no difference between Jew or Greek or black or white or rich or poor or young or old or male or female or religious or irreligious. The same Lord over all who is rich in mercy to all who call upon him and whoever so shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So these stories give us something about the gospel. But number two, they're recorded to give us glimpses of different people in our city and show us how to reach them. They're to give us glimpses of different people in our city and show us how to reach them. So there's three kinds of people in our community that are reached in three different ways. Number one, Lydia. Lydia is the spiritually interested person. Lydia is the spiritually interested person in Woodstock. Lydia is the spiritually interested person in Atlanta. The spiritually interested person in Dallas. The spiritually interested person in Canton. She thinks of herself as a religious person. How do you engage her? How do you engage somebody who's a Lydia in Woodstock? Here's how you do Paul engages her in a spiritual conversation and studies the Bible with her. And how so you do it. You want to get a Lydia being reached for Jesus? Then you go to someone who's spiritually interested and you engage them in spiritual conversation and you engage them in studying the Bible. Now listen to me. There are a lot of people in our community who fit this profile. There are a lot of people in the Bible belt who fit this profile, even our college campuses, Taylor, there are 40-something thousand people at Kennesaw State, and there are thousands of them that are Lydia's. We just need more harvest hands who are willing to go and study the Bible with them. That's what we need. We need more people to engage them in spiritual conversation. You know, the Bible people need to be saved from their salvation, don't they? They need to be saved to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so we live in that. We need to be saved and delivered from our salvation to go to Jesus, to come back to Jesus and no longer religion. But Lydia is reached, Sometimes these people are spiritual people, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're active in church, but a lot of times they're not. But for whatever reason, they're open to having spiritual conversations. I call them CEO people, Christmas and Easter only. They go to church, Christmas. I I was a Lydia. When someone came to me and invited me to church, I was open to spiritual conversation. I was not group two or three. Some of you may be group two or three. We'll see in a minute. But I was a Lydia. What's the best way to reach a Lydia? Expose them to the Bible. How do you do that, Craig? Well, let me give you some practical ways. You ready? Take some notes right here. I told them in the early guiding, I'm gonna go on Facebook and put this, if you're a Facebook friend, I'll put this on my Facebook wall this evening too, just as a resource. Here's a couple ways you do this with Lydia's in our community. Number one, invite them to church. Just invite them to church. Now, you say that's the easiest way. Yes, it is the easiest way. But I wanna tell you, and I hope you know this by now, one of our one of the things we we try to do at Dwelling Place is to partner with you to reach your friends. I look at my role, is to not only equip the body, but I look at my role on Sundays when I'm preaching. To raise questions that you'll have fun answering with your friends at lunch. I will raise questions, I promise you, I will. I'll commit to doing that. Raising questions that when you leave, and I have enough faith in you, that you'll go talk to your unbelieving friend at lunch and or dinner tonight and take them out and you'll just talk to them about these questions. I, I, you've heard me say, it's, I, I call it air war and ground war. Air war, I'm air war. Pastor Chad's air war. We drop bombs over Baghdad. Truth bomb. truth bomb, truth bomb, this section of the sanctuary. Truth bomb, but then you are the ground foot soldiers that go and do the work through the rest of the week. So it's air war and ground war. You're ground war over the loss. We might be air war in some sense. So so the reality is my commitment to you is, is to not say idiotic things. Okay, you've ever been there before to the church and you're embarrassed to all get out because your pastor says something just totally idiotic to your friend and it's always the day. They don't say anything idiotic until you finally get your friend there who's lost. Right? we make a commitment to you to not say idiotic things. We make a commitment to you so that you can invite a friend. Listen to me, I believe it's a sin if I get up here and bored you with the Bible. It is a sin on my part if I get up here and don't do my study to present to you a word of God that's fresh and able to engage. It's a sin. Sin on my part. Why? Because we're partnering with you to try to reach your friends. That's the easiest way. That's the easiest way. Here's the second way Make a list of verses and do the taste and see method. Many of you heard of the taste and see method? Real simple. Here's what you do Take 15 of your favorite verses, write them down. If you think your partner or your person at your workplace isn't lazy and they won't look them up, write them out on the sheet of paper. And here's what you do. You write them down, 15, 20 of them, and say, over the next five days, read one per day, and here's what I want you to do to your friend who's an unbeliever but spiritually interested. Say, ask, ask yourself two questions when you read it. What does it mean, and then what does it mean for you? And then say, meet me at Starbucks next Thursday, 3 p.m., and we're going to sit down, and I want you to, to go over with me what you thought about those five verses or those seven verses, just one a day. I promise you, you do that long enough with a spiritually interested person. And at some point they're gonna taste, and those fire, those, those, those taste buds are gonna light up like the fourth of July. And they're gonna see that the Lord is good. The taste and see method. There's another one called the Simple Bible Study Method. You know what that is? Real simple. That was supposed to be funny, but it's called the Simple Bible study method. It's real simple. Here's what it is: you gotta get in a Bible reading plan. So whew. You gotta get on Bible reading plan. What is the, Get on whatever Bible, there's you version has billions of them. You want the one we use, I use? I'll be more than glad to share with you. Get on a Bible reading plan. But here's the deal. You ask them six questions, real simple. Every text they read, here's the six questions. Send it to them. Take a picture, do whatever you, what did you learn about God from this passage? what did you learn about yourself? Is there a command you need to obey? What does an exercise of faith look like in this passage? Is there a sin I need to confess? And how does this passage help you understand the gospel better? Just simple six questions. So you say, hey, I want you to read one chapter, Romans 1. I want you to read one chapter, Colossians 2. I want you to read one chapter and just ask yourself those six questions. Here's another way to do it. Start a larger Bible study. Start a larger Bible study. But you know what? You don't actually have to start a larger Bible study because on April 12th, we've got them called growth phases right here. We already partner with you. Look, you got a friend who's ready? Invite them to growth phases. I told the earlier gathering, I, I guarantee you will go to few churches in Woodstock that, you, that a pastor will say what I'm about to say. If you only got one home run chance with that long believing friend, instead of inviting them, and, and you know they, they wanna serve you, say, hey, for Easter this year, I don't want you to come to Easter Sunday with me. I want you to actually go three growth phases with me starting April 12th. Pick three Thursdays with me. That's all I want from you. You give me three Thursdays and just see if, taste and see if, if God didn't take somebody who's spiritually interested and, sh- and wreck them by the power of God. Now, I know no preacher's going to tell you that, but you know what the reality is? We'll see people come to Christ in growth phase just like we'll see at Resurrection Sunday. So capitalize, folks. Be wise as a soul winner. Be wise, wise, wise. Wisdom, he who wins souls is wise, Proverbs eleven thirty one. So the reality is we've got to find ways. Here's another way. Invite them to read a good book with you. If they're a reader, pick up PDL, Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren. Read it. First statement of the book, chapter one. It's not about you, right? I've read Purpose Driven Life multiple times with people. Uh, Another one, you you got somebody who's mentally inclined, they want to ask questions, uh, do do The Reason for God by Tim Keller. The Reason for God. Okay, engage them. Just engage them, just read a book. And as you do this, what are you looking for, Craig? I'm looking for God to do what? Open the heart like he did for Lydia. Don't you love that phrase, and the Lord opened her heart? Because that takes the pressure off of me. God is the one who does the convincing. I don't open hearts. I don't convince people. I just simply present the word. And a lot of people, they think that for you to be a good evangelist, you have to be an extreme extrovert like Pastor Craig, who could sell vacuum cleaners to people if he got fired from ministry. That's not the case. You don't have to be an extrovert. To be a good evangelist, you have to believe two things. You ready? Number one, you have to believe that salvation belongs to God, and you have to believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you believe that salvation belongs to God, it takes the pressure off you that you don't have to convince anybody. You don't have to seal any deal. It takes the pressure off you, but believing by faith that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God puts responsibility on you. Why? Because the word of God can't begin to convince where it's not been placed. So it's our job to play Scrabble with the culture. Let them say a word and build the gospel word off of one of their letters. Hymn them in with the gospel. Take whatever words are in their life and hymn them in with gospel. Hymn them in with God's love. Just keep on putting the word in front of them. And I promise you the word will convince them. The word's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. This is the word of God. But here's the problem. That's only how we reach person number one. And for the problem for Western churches is most churches, our evangelism stops right there. So our whole evangelistic strategy is to get your friends to come to our big event. But that's only reaching one group. That's only reaching Lydia's. That's only reaching spiritually interested people. That's only reaching people who are open. But the problem is there are two other kinds of people, and they won't be reached by inviting them to church. The slave girl would never show up at the place of prayer, and neither will the Roman soldier. Physically, she can't. She's a slave. The Roman soldier is cynical and has no interest in religion. I know it sounds so simple, but I was 16 years old. I was a professional invite-to-church person. When I met Jesus, I invited everybody, Liz. I was like you. I was like you. We thank God for you, Liz. Thank God for you, our church. I was inviting everybody. You couldn't shut me up anywhere I went. But I never forget, I'm simple in the faith. I went to church one uh, Sunday morning, Al, and I pulled into the gas station. And there was a homeless man there. And when I walked in, I remember being so overwhelmed. And it's not that I hadn't thought about it before, but I just hadn't thought of it in this way. And I got him a Coke and a bag of chips, and I got in my truck and drove on to church, and I literally started tearing up, and I thought, you know what? We are not set up as a church to reach people like him. I mean, he could come, but it's a totally different culture. Oh, yeah, we say in the church we're open. Our doors are open to anyone, but the problem is we're not intentionally being able to create a culture that makes that person feel like home. We're not doing all that we can, to try to engage that part. And he's not gonna come. And I just remember, I know it sounds so simple, but I started crying because I'm thinking, we're set up as a church to not ever reach that type of society. We can't do it. In our current setup, we are unable to do that. And every year, there are more and more people who aren't going to church. There's a book recently out called Everyday Church Mission by Steve Timmis. He cited a recent study in which 70% of Brits say there are no intention of ever attending a church service. He said, Craig, that's a Britain, that's not America, but we're about 30 years behind Britain. And, in, and 70% will never attend a church service for any reason, not at Easter, not for marriages, not for funerals, not for Christmas Eve services. And here's what he says in his book. He says, that means new styles of worship will not reach them. Fresh expressions of church will not reach them. Great first impressions teams and welcome tents out there at the A-frame will not reach them. Churches meeting in cool venues will not reach them. The vast majority of unchurched and de people will not turn to the church even if faced with difficult personal circumstance or in the event of national tragedies. It's not a question of improving the product of church meetings and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events. It's not about better music and a funnier story and an awesome, more relevant series sermon series. It's not going to reach group number two. It will reach Lydia's, but it won't reach captive's. And Great Britain is a few years ahead of the United States in secularization. Things like Easter, they draw big crowds in America. Things like Christmas Eve, they draw big crowds in America. But where Great Britain is is where we're clearly headed. And each year, the pie of people in our communities who will come to our churches for special events is shrinking. That pie is shrinking. And if we don't learn to carry the gospel outside of those meetings, we're going to lose them all. Can I just speak prophetically for a minute? What I think we're going to see in the future of America is a lot of new, flashy megachurches fighting over larger pieces of a shrinking pie of bored Christians. And bored Christians are bored Christians because they're not involved in mission. That's why you're so bored. That's why you got to be entertained because you're not on the mission that God's called you to. You're not seeing people being fished for Jesus and disciple for Jesus. You're bored. You're not being used for the intention that God called. And so we're now fighting over A shrinking pie of disinterested Christians. But for those of us who want to reach the rest of the culture, we got to think about growing the pie. We got to get the pie bigger. We got to carry the gospel outside the church. We got to infect society. We got to be more committed to penetrating the culture than we are to packing our churches. We've got to be committed to doing whatever we can to get the gospel message to people. You see, George Barna says the the year, each year, the 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 people that check nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns you know, NES, that means they have no religious affiliation. It's growing in America at an astounding rate. And nuns will never casually make their way into church for any reason. It's almost like you're dealing, he said, with people of a completely different religion. Can I can I, can I paint this picture for you? Uh, two two uh, springs ago, I was in Israel. And we went one day to Bethlehem, which is 99.99% Muslim. And in the church of Nativity, where Jesus was born, where historically they think Jesus was born. There's a big Bethlehem square, and you have probably seen it on CNN or whatever at Christmas time. You see all the, the people gathering, but right on that square is the one of the most well-known church mo- uh, mosque, I should say, not churches, mosque in the entire Muslim world. It's called the Mosque of Oman, and a uh, Mosque of Oman. And I never forget when I was there, we were with this guy who was a local. He was showing us his uh, woodworking shop, and he said to me, "He said, would you ever consider going to that mosque?" I said, I would never consider going to that mosque. He said, what do you mean, never? I said, no, regardless of how relevant or funny the imam, the pastor was, I would never go to that mosque. I wouldn't have gone for a special holiday. I wouldn't have gone when I was in hard times. I wouldn't have gone when I was depressed and needed hope. I wouldn't have gone when my family was te- torn apart. I wouldn't go if they put up a billboard in Bethlehem with a really helpful series on relationships and grabbed my attention with sex in February. I would not have gone. Why? Because it was a foreign world. You better hear me. Hear this faster. As we grow forward in Christianity in America, Christianity will be as foreign to the unbeliever as the Muslim faith is to me. It's a completely different religion. I'm not going to be one with a catchy tagline. I'm not going to be one with a billboard. I'm not going to be one because you do a series on sex for me. I'm not going to be one. I'm a nun. So how are we going to reach these people in our society? That's the second one, the physical and spiritual captive. That's the woman with the divination. That's not Lydia. How does she reach? She's reached by Paul delivering her, which means you have to get involved in their lives. You have to get involved in their lives and deeply consistently treat them as people, not treat them as projects, not treat them as your workmanship to get them to come to Christ. Treat them as a human being created in the image of God no matter how much that image is effaced because it's not erased. It may be marred, but it's not erased. They're created in God's image. so You got to involve yourself in them. And I started thinking, I could explain this to you, but I thought it'd be better if I told you a story about it. So when we relaunched the church in August 2015, we had connect groups that were meeting throughout the community, like we meet tonight. Some of you are connect groups in the beginning, and you're still connect group leaders. Others have transitioned. One of our connect group leaders had a heart and passion for college ministry on KSU's campus, and so his name was Travis Arrington, and he started connect group on KSU's campus. And now, since then, Taylor was reached uh, through the church ministry on Dwight D.P.'s ministry on KSU's campus, and Taylor's now the leader along, alongside Anthony in that, that campus ministry. But I never forget that there was a, I mean, there's the month of April of 2015, and we were in a series called Pain Management right after Easter. And uh, a young man uh, had a real encounter with the Lord here in our gathering. But I want you to hear the backstory of how he was actually reached, how he came to faith in Christ. So put your hands together and welcome Josh Botang as he comes. So just tell him a little bit about your backstory, Josh, of where you were at in that point in your life when the guys came up to you there at KSU. Okay,
0: so I was a student at KSU,
1: as he said. Um, don't My family
0: never really was church-going family. Didn't really have a Christian background, but I did believe that there was a God. And, you know, just as a regular student, I do what I call living for the... I was leaving, living for the weekend, living in the flesh, just partying and everything, doing stuff that I wasn't supposed to do. But I always felt like that led me to feeling empty afterwards, and I felt like there was something more. So, I mean, I, I did start praying, like, you know, my, my whole church experience was like reading the bible when I could and um I I would pray like you know like I I wanted to find a church needless to say um I want one day I was about to go to class leaving work I uh went to Chick-fil-a in our student center and Travis Anthony and Taylor they came up to me and invited me to their small group and I couldn't go that day because I had class but um I decided next week I skip class and go to the small group, and then from there, I uh, I started like continuously attending their small group, and it led to me coming to dwelling pace. And you know, from what he was saying earlier is, I mean, uh, you start coming to the sermons and you start getting addicted to the truth. You know, these, these these sermons are really good, and I kept kept coming, kept coming, kept coming, kept going to the small group at the same time. And one day I was sitting around in this area over here. He was preaching on praying management, and everything just clicked for me. Um, and I just I couldn't explain what it was. I just started crying uncontrollably. And before then, I mean, I'm not really a, a really emotional person. So, I mean, it was, this was different, and I couldn't explain it. But I really felt like I encountered God, and that was a turning point for me. I gave my life to Christ.
1: Amen. Amen. <laughs> Can we celebrate? Amen. Isn't that awesome? And never forget, man, being cut to the heart. And God saved him and Taylor was telling me it was one of the best days of his life and we were able to celebrate because these small group, connect group guys were able to see and witness that. Listen, Josh's is not gonna be reached by just inviting him to church the first time. Josh is gonna be reached because we go into communities. Joshua's are going to be reached because we go into school campuses. Joshua's are going to go be reached, and, and, and Joshua's are going to be reached by, because we go to prisons, and they are going to be Natalie's that are reached because we go to pregnancy clinics, and we watch a 21-year-old girl come in who's scared to death and wondering what the future holds and what we share the love of God. We've got to ab- absolutely engage people's lives. It's the only way emotional and spiritual captives are one. It's engagement. And when you get the taste of winning one to Jesus, I promise you, it becomes an addiction. It becomes a craving. But the stats don't lie. Less than 2% of American Christians have ever led one person to Jesus. 85% of new believers in our nation are won to Christ by people who've known Christ for two years or less. Because they're passionate for the mission. I want to make a confession that I refuse as a pastor to forget what it feels like to be lost. To forget what it feels like to be without hope this Sunday morning. To forget what it feels like to be without any direction in life. To forget what it feels like to know what tomorrow brings. These people, they got to be reached by us engaging them. Only by engaging them. The third one is the Philippian jailer. Come on, Maddie. This is the skeptic. How do you win a skeptic? (laughs) I'll just give you a quick answer. two things are number one. He observed Paul and Silas' joy in the midst of pain, and he was the recipient of their extravagant grace. The skeptic was led to Jesus because he saw them rejoice in the midst of their suffering and he was given extravagant grace. Paul came back for him. Paul had the freedom to leave the jail, and yet he came back for him. And that guy got saved. He he came to faith in Christ. Paul recognized that God had appointed him and appointed this suffering to reach the jailer, which is why he didn't run from him when the earthquake happened. Instead, he chose to do two things in the midst of it. He chose to keep giving praise to God and show extraordinary grace to those who mistreated him. You want to win the skeptic's heart? You show extraordinary praise in your suffering and you show extravagant grace to those people who don't deserve it. Love people that don't deserve it and love people when they least expect it. Love people when they don't expect it. Love people when they don't deserve the mercy. And what if in the midst of the pain, your first thought was not, God, what have I done wrong? But God, whose life are you trying to use me to spare? What if in your pain, like Philippi, I know you're not in a jail cell, but what if in your pain and suffering, you stop saying, God, have you turned your back on me and started saying, God, who are you trying to use me to spare for your kingdom right now? Who Who is watching my suffering right now that you want my testimony to be a, a, a testimony of your goodness? Who is watching me in my pain right now that I can maintain a voice of praise, that I can maintain my praise, and I can give extravagant grace even in the midst of my suffering? Here's a wild thought for you. Ready? Maybe sometimes we should quit asking God to take away this week what we asked him in prayer to give us last week. You asked him last week to use you in your in your job, and now you're suffering, and you're saying, God, what's going on? God's saying, I'm just trying to use you. You asked me, I'm just giving you what you asked. You said you wanted to be used. You said you wanted to be useful. So now I'm trying to get you to be faithful to serve me in the midst of unfairness. I'm trying to get you to be faithful and not lose your praise in the midst of injustice. Why? Because that's when the prisoners begin to watch." that's when the captives begin to watch that's when the skeptics begin to watch they begin to see you know what there is something more to this and it's through God using ordinary people when you suffer you're like God oh what have I done wrong and you're looking for some promise in the word of God for comfort so you flip open your Bible and you do that jeopardy thing that Bible lottery thing and you, you put your finger down and you open your eyes and you land in Leviticus and you're like God I knew you hated me But why not turn to John 16, 33 where Jesus said in the world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And to realize that your pain is the part of how Jesus is trying to get overcome the world of somebody else so that they can see you in the midst of your pain, difficulty, and challenge and yet not lose your praise and not lose your ability to dispense grace and yet yet in the midst of that they are overcoming the world. What if God intention was not just to deliver you from adversity but in adversity I love both types of deliverance by the way it's just normally God does the second one with me deliver from or deliver in deliver in adversity deliver in adversity there's two things about your pain number one you need to see it coming you need to see it through don't be surprised when pain comes what did did God tell Ananias when Paul was born again Show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul was not surprised by suffering. He was not surprised by pain. He was not surprised by it. You know, one of the verses that God reminded me of this week that I think was rain a word for my wife. I shared it with her because we were talking about something going on with our daughter. And, and the temptation is to always get worked up into a frenzy. And God's just reminded this verse again. I was reading Psalm 112, verse 7. I love it. The righteous have no fear of bad news, why, because they never get it, no they get it, but their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. The righteous have no fear of bad news, does that describe you? What what fear do you have right now, is it a bad report, you have a fear of getting a bad doctor's report, what fear do you have right now? It's real to you. What anxiety do you have? Is it a retirement that's not going to go through? It's a job loss? What what kind of fear do you have? You say, Craig, how how can I not let the fear be bad news to me? Well, it will only be the case when you know that God has appointed you to overcome the world. And the way that he does that is not just delivering you from adversity, but delivering you in adversity so he can show others that you have a hope that goes beyond this world, that you have a hope that goes beyond your current reality, and you've got to know God's appointed you to overcome the world. He's appointed you. So you got to see it coming and then see it through. You know what see it through means? You got to make the decision to never cease praising God. It don't matter what come hell and high water. It don't matter what comes in my life. I ain't ever gonna lose the praise of God on my lips. In other words, I'm going to choose to worship God. And you're not gonna feel like it. I don't think Paul and Silas when they got blood coming down off of their feet, dripping off of their noses, felt like praising God. When they're smelling fecal matter, I don't think they felt like praising God. But you got to be like Habakkuk, where you say, though there be no crop in the field. Though there be no herd in the stalls, I will. That means I choose to rejoice in God my Savior. you got to work yourself up like David sometime and say, you know what, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not his benefits. No, bless the Lord, oh my soul. I'm choosing to worship. You know why I get up here and veins pop out of my neck? Why well, I tell you in this church, let's worship exuberantly. Let's stop looking like a frozen chosen. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, I just grew up in a church where... Where we we reverence God with silence. There's a there's a part and parcel to that too. But listen, we put, people grow up and say, "Man, you know, you're you're quiet as a church mouse." Like, we don't want to be rodents for Jesus at DP. You know what I'm saying? Like, you need to lift your voice, raise your voice, and start worshiping God exuberantly. Why do, we, why do we get so passionate about you getting passionate about worship? Because it's our worship that puts on display our belief in the promises of God. And the prisoners are watching. They're watching when they come in on Sunday morning, whether or not you believe that God is faithful and God is worthy of praise, regardless of what you're going through. And when you lift up your hands and you exuberantly worship God, unrestrictedly, unreservedly, then your worship is a testament to a prisoner your worship's a testimony it's a testimony Craig well I'm not your same personality I'm more reserved yeah right I understand it ain't about personality because the same people with their hands in their pocket you were screaming at your TV last night for March Madness oh come on Villanova beat Alabama come on Kentucky and you're screaming your head off let me tell you there ain't no Coach K or LeBron or Dwayne Wade gonna walk up next to your hospital bed when you get the bad diagnosis that you got cancer but God says I'll be with you through the fire I'll walk with you hand in hand so if you can give some praise to an NBA player you ought to give some praise to Jesus who is faithful to stick closer than a brother who loves you with an everlasting love and with loving kindness Hath he drawn you to himself? You can worship Jesus. Pain and unfortunate circumstances are your chance to put your hope and joy in God. Well, Craig, I feel weird worshiping exuberantly. Well, a lot of people do. Just put a smile on. Just start there. Can I? Can, I, I look around sometimes. Just put a smile on on Sunday morning. I saw them asking and then sing a little bit. It ain't no big deal. It ain't no big deal. Just sing. I look. I come in. I know because I come in late. I, I can watch people. Just sing, and before no just just move a little bit. You ain't got to do much. Just move, right? After a while, you're doing worship frisbees. You know what I'm saying? You seen the Tim Hawkins? You're doing a little worship frisbees. Before long, you'll you'll carry the TV. You know, just carry the TV. Before long, you're doing high fives for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're going crazy. But but the reality is, you just got to get. You got to worship. You got to be exuberant in your worship. You do. Washing heaven's windows, you know. <laughs> Whatever it takes. I'm tired of seeing the worst of Christians come out in the worst of times. Tornado goes through a community. Earthquake comes in. Hurricane. And they find the one dude in the city, CNN does, the worst Christian. They interview and put him right up on the screen. Well, dear God, you know. I, I, this is terrible. I'm cause, it's because all them sinners moved in our city. I'm going to go back here to my rapture, my rapture-ready bus stop behind my house and wait for Jesus to come back. You know know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm ready? I'm ready for us to resolve that in the worst of the worst, the best of the best is going to come out of us so our world can see the greatest of greatest of all saviors. That in the worst of the worst, our best of the best comes out, that they might see the greatest of greatest saviors. That, you know what? Our God is faithful. Some of you right now, you're in a bad marriage, tough job situation. That's for someone out there. Chronic health problems, a victim injustice. I'm not telling you do what you can do to not prevent it, because the next five verses, Paul tries to prevent that beating to happening ever again. So please don't dismiss that. That's what he does the next five verses. I'm not saying do whatever you can try to do to get out of it, but all I'm saying is that you can trust God in it to reach the skeptic and prisoners around you. So it's show extravagant praise. But you know what the cousin to extravagant praise is? Extravagant grace. They're cousins. And you got to show extravagant praise when you're in the shackles, but then when you get set free from the shackles, Paul went and showed extravagant grace to the torture of his life. And it broke his heart. Nothing puts the gospel on display like grace in the midst of injustice to give kindness to those who mistreat you. Never forget, some time ago I was at a restaurant and this guy, I got bad service. You ever just get bad service days? And this guy, in fact, should have probably paid me a tip. You know what I'm saying? And he was having a bad day and I knew it. I wasn't going to let it get me all worked up. Although I do get really, I'm just going to tell you, your pastor gets really worked up and I get really uncomfortable if I go to eat with you and you become really demanding of the person who's waiting tables. That makes me really uncomfortable very quickly. It makes me really, really uncomfortable. I'm just going to go ahead and forewarn you on that, okay? So it's everything within me that wants to speak in those moments. This guy, he's having a hard day. I know he's having a hard day, and he comes up, and I get my bill, and I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to write a big zero zero on there, but instead of writing a zero zero, I actually give him cash. I give him a 40% tip. I think we should always give at least 20% tips as Christians. I think we all should do that, but 40% tip, and I'm not kidding. He comes back to me. He says, I don't understand, and this is all I could tell him. I said, listen, man, when I deserved wrath, God gave me mercy. I don't know what to tell you, and and the reality is that you, you, you I don't know what's going on in your life today that's causing you to act like this, but I just want to tell you that grace is available for you. Did you did pray right there, except Jesus is Lord and said, no. That's not my job. My job is to show extravagant praise and extravagant grace. To continue to put the word of God before someone. To allow God to speak to their heart. You say, Craig, I don't have situations like that. Yeah, you do. There are dozens all around you. They're all around you. Each and every day, I want to read something to you I found so powerful this week. William Booth, the beginner of the Salvation Army, is what he said. On Sunday evening, William Booth was walking in London with his son Bramwell. Bramwell was 12 years old. The father surprised the son by taking him into a saloon. The place was crowded with men and women, and many of them bearing on their faces the marks of vice and crime, and some were drunk. faces of alcohol, and fumes of alcohol, I should say, and tobacco were poisonous. William Booth looked at his son, 12 years old. He said, Willie? These are our people. These are the people I want you to live for and bring to Christ for the rest of your life. And years later, 55 years old, Bramwell Booth said, the impression my dad made on me that day never left me. These are our people. These are our people. This is who Christ came to save. Live your life for him body, the gospel in front of them. You know, Billy Graham just passed one to his earthly reward, or a etern- uh, heavenly reward. A, a friend of his named Leighton Ford he came across the store I had to share. Leighton Ford was speaking in an open air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Billy Graham was scheduled to speak the next night. He had arrived a day early. He came in incognito and sat on the grass at the rear of the crowd. And because he was wearing a hat and dark glasses, no one recognized him. Well, directly in front of him while Leighton's preaching, sat an elderly gentleman right in front of Billy on the grass who seemed to be listening intently to my presentation late in speaking when I invited people to come forward as an open sign of commitment Billy decided to do a little personal evangelism he tapped the man on the shoulder Billy did he said to the guy he said would you like to accept Christ if you do I will I will walk down with you if you want to and the old man looked him up and down thought it over for a moment he said nah I think I'll just wait till tomorrow till the big, come, big gun comes tomorrow night and late said you know what we've had several chuckles over that incident He said, how in the minds of many people, evangelism is the task of the big guns, not the little shots. But that day, Billy Graham was a little shot and the man had a chance to accept Jesus, but he wanted to wait till the big shot who was actually the same person. The gospel doesn't go forward by the big shots. It goes by big guns. It's by the little shots. It's by the everyday and fighting, talking to the Lydia's, talking to the captives, engaging those who are skeptics, living your life. A testimony of his praise. Would you your head?
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.